Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Sabrina Seidel. Sabrina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So Sabrina built a long and successful career in providing operational and strategic advisory services to senior leaders and investors across multiple industry sectors, including single family office, real estate development, and asset management. She worked on an international level for many years and has a deep passion for all aspects of relationship management and making an impact by creating critical and meaningful connections between people producing excellent business results. And that's where I, I want to start. You know, this concept of work culture and leadership has become part of the zeitgeist and is really what stakeholders are focused on today. But as you talk about in your content and on your previous interviews that I've heard, there's also this inherent tension there between kind of this logic and emotion and how you actually can create trust. So I'd love to hear kind of your most up-to-date thoughts on that. Sure. So trust, I think it's not that different how you develop trust in your personal relationships in a business setting. The context is different and the stakes are probably different, but how you go about creating that experience, you know, that inherent human experience of trust is essentially very similar. And so back in the day, right before COVID and everything, we had you know, opportunities to build the trust. And I would say it's built between the meetings, right? It's sort of the coffee chats, it's the sidebar, it's the water cooler, it's you know, going to events together, conferences. And that then didn't exist anymore, right? In the, in the era of remote work. And so how do you go about building that? Especially if you hadn't had that physical contact before and if you onboard people remotely and you never had that physical presence to build that relationship. So I think you have to be very intentional about that, right? And how do we do that in the era of Zoom meetings and, and remote work? I think being intentional about it means being pretty aware and just checking in with people in, in non-work calls, right? So don't make it about work. Just check up on people, see what they're doing, how they're doing. I think everybody dealt with this COVID and remote work differently. For some people, it was an easy transition. For others, it was triggering. There's all kinds of things that are going on in people's homes as a result of that that nobody knows, right? But I think the experience is different for everyone. And I think being sensitive to how people adapt, good, better, or worse, I think it's important for leaders and management to tune into that and check in with their people. So within the context of, of family offices and financial services folks, I think part of this anxiety that we saw play out with COVID is this pace of change that we're seeing occur with the advent of technology and exponential growth of technology. As a leader or somebody who's trying to manage a, an intimate small group of people, how do you manage that anxiety while also embracing the technology necessary to stay, keep a pace within your own industry? So that is a super interesting topic, right? Because you have some companies that's been added for decades, you know, the Amazons and the Googles of the world, and then the rest is trying to catch up now, right? And, you know, what do you do and where do you start? And I think that is sort of the biggest deterrent, where to start and what does it mean for my organization and change not being something that people are super comfortable with, right? Because it's sort of scary. I think 
but you have to adapt to it, right? So getting a pulse on your level of adaptability, both as humans and people and workforce and as somebody leading in a family office, I think that is critical. And then where does it make sense to adopt the change, right? Because just blindly jumping on a bandwagon just for the sake of doing it is strategically also not a good plan because it can cost a lot. It can do more damage than good. But I think generally approaching things with an open mind and also changing sort of a culture. And maybe that may be relevant for some organizations, maybe it won't, right? So if you're in an organization in financial services, you know, that's obviously very relevant, right? It's a very fast paced, alpha driven, you know, community where everything has to be perfect, you know, driven to excellence. The inherent DNA of innovation is experimenting and inherent in that is failure, right? So how do you approach that? Things don't always go perfect and they never do, right? So there's always this tolerance for failure or falling you need to build in. And then how do you make those bets where risks are being calculated and you make the right risks at the right level that you can absorb? So you may drive the car in a ditch, but you don't total it, you know? but allow that space for the community to experiment with things that will lead to innovative solutions. Something that we've talked a lot about on the show is this generational shift between baby boomers and millennials and Gen Z occurring within leadership positions, especially within family offices. It's been talked about for a number of years. It's actually taking place now, it feels like. How do you manage that generational gap effectively while, you know, maintaining this sense of entrepreneurship within the family office space? So I think the, it's generational gaps is one thing, right? So you have multi-generations working together. It's also, you know, with this increased push, thank God, finally, for diversity, right? You have so many different worldviews, right? How people communicate, how to make sense of the world, how to receive communication, how they think. It's, it's also very different to what I find is you need like translators, right? Because everybody seems to be very, you know, convinced of their own views for whatever reason. And if you try to question their view, people often feel attacked, right? It raises triggers. And then so you have all these different silos that say, well, we've always done it that way. And this is the right way to do it. And you never reach consensus of doing it any other way. So I find that sprinkling people in there that have the ability to translate and broker, if you will, you know, between viewpoints and facilitate those Nubby conversations is one way, one way of doing it. And on real estate, right, I was inherently early on in my real estate days, you know, worked for a first generation founder of a massive real estate empire. And he bought all the real estate in the 30s. And then, you know, now we're getting into how you treat tenant relations, right? And so people being behind in rent and how he treated those instances were inherently different, how following generations treated it right so he comes from the old school where you work with your tenant right because having the space sitting vacant will cost you a lot more than working with them and come up with a payment plan the younger generations were like ready to go and kick them out right so again those are things that are very treated very differently depending on the era they came up in and, and how they approach things and have you seen consistency across families that are able to actually successfully transition between first generation wealth creator and G2, G3, beyond? I think it's important you bring in outside people to facilitate those conversations, right? Because when you stay within the family, it's usually very, it probably doesn't get you too far, right? So, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that offer coaching for these generational gaps or trust companies, right? That help with educating 
next generations on money and on investment management and all these, because I think you need an outside person. So having somebody from the inside is hard, right? Because it's family. So inherently you have those family dynamics that are constantly coming to the surface and you go in circles. So you, you think a third party should come in in a leadership position or just somebody who's in there being air traffic control during this transition period? It could be either one. You know, I'd argue that as a consultant, so I worked with senior leadership teams and family offices, both in-house and as a consultant. And as a consultant, you can be more effective, right? Because you have like no skin in the game. You're not part of any political, you know, aspects and discussions. So you can be super blunt and people also tend to be more open to you versus when you're in it, there is definitely, you know, some some reservation on people opening up to you and telling you what they think. And so I realize every family is different, but there is this general idea that the future of work, and you referenced COVID and how we're rethinking how we interact and communicate. I mean, how does that play into this whole dynamic that you've discussed? And, and what do you think of when somebody, a client comes to you and says, hey, we need to rethink how we run kind of the administrative component of the family office? Well, if you think about work, right? And I you know, I look at it sort of at the macro level, like how work used to be, right? Like since the first industrial revolution, right? People go to work and they go home and they have a whole nother life, right? They leave work behind and do whatever they need to do and then go home to their families. Now it's all like munched into one thing, right? Where especially after COVID and technology and remote work takes on a whole nother role, right? And also the next generations, what they want work to be. And I see this when consulting with some tech firms here, right? You have these leaders that came up in the oracles of the world, right? In that leadership style. And now they're retired and now they go run a startup. And now they're working with millennials. That leadership style does not work at all. So it's like bridging the gaps because people now want more out of their work, right? They want purpose. They want community. They want coaching. They want training. They want mentoring. So there's all these additional demands that work inherently in the past did not have to provide and now it does and now what do you do as a leader and how do you put processes in place to get the talent because also the talent community has changed right because back in the day people would stay with jobs for 30 40 years now you know you don't promote somebody within the first two months and they just leave <laughs> or they don't see the purpose and the impact that the organization needs to make for them to want to stay and affiliate then they leave. So I think workplaces have to really think through a lot more and be a lot more, whether that's right or wrong. I'm not sure, but that's where we live. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, more and more families that I'm interacting with are now having chief learning officers embedded within the family and internal within the C-suite. And that's become a big focus for people. So in regards to that, there's this kind of arms race for talent now. Family offices are now competing with venture capital firms, with traditional investment banks, financial services, Wall Street, et cetera. What are you hearing and feeling from your clients on how they are able to attract and obviously retain top tier talent? It's more along the same what you just mentioned, what you're seeing as well, right? It's offering all these aspects. And I think coaching is another big thing, right? That that people would want that I think is helpful. And in financial services, especially, you know, I grew up in finance and tech, so it's mostly male-dominated, hard-driving, you know, fast-paced, very alpha-dominated. Coaching always has a bad connotation, right? Something you need. But I'd argue that any sports athlete, anybody who is at the highest performance in any field could do with a coach. So I see it more as, as accelerating your success than 
having anything of damage control or having anything to do with that. So I think more of the same is needed to attract the talent because talent will leave if you don't offer that. Well, and I think that's where you see that generational gap where baby boomers might see coaching as an admission of weakness or, or yes. you know, some kind of fault, whereas younger generations would see it as an opportunity to learn and grow, right? Yeah, and that's what they want. And I think that's what it is. And, you know, I have to say in full disclosure, which is funny you bring that up, I always served at what I thought, I mean, I used it as a term coach, right? Actual coaching is actually something very different, but how the classic coaching works would not work for me either. So I approach more as an advisory, an advisory role, right? Which is very different from actual coaching in its, in its essence, according to the ICF. But if I had to be coached through the classic coaching, I couldn't do it, right? Because it's basically a series of open-ended questions and you let the person, the coachee, drive themselves to the answers. That does not work for most of Wall Street or finance, right? Because the leaders that I work with, right, they want a thought partner. Yes, they want you to call out where the pitfalls are, where the risks are, but then give me five different pathways and what should I choose and why, right? Boom, boom, boom. So this is why I think it's my suspicion that coaching might have a bad rap on, on in, in finance. And I, I get that, right? Because none of the people that I coach in executive coaching would go along with that open-ended question therapy-like style. Yeah, I understand that. So, But even given that, in your experience, and maybe even within this older generation, the founder generation, where have you seen them be able to really articulate well what success looks like, what success means, and, and be able to have that drive through the rest of the organization? You mean how to align the organization to, to that exactly. goal? I think that's up to the leader, right? Like, you know, organizational alignment is super important. When I work with tech companies, right, I made sure that people that code and write code all day, which is a pretty mundane task, right? But how that relates directly to the overall strategy and vision. And it's really a responsibility of the, the founder and CEO to create that versus, and there's many mechanics on how to do that, right? You can have AMAs, right? That ask me anything setting or town halls where you offer a venue where people can ask you, you know, really anything you want, right? Anything that's that's in your mind, because it's really important to get into the head of the CEO or leader or founder and align to that vision, which then empowers everybody that's working on the team to work toward that, right? And not look at it as a task, as a single task they need to do or many tasks, because it's, and it also gives ownership, right? Like I always say, I want people who want to work like owners, and not employees, because the employee mindset will not lead to any growth, right? And there's jobs for that in big organizations to have people that come in at nine and leave at five. But if you want to produce anything great and want to make a dent in society and an impact, that's not a nine to five job. And how does that relate to communication, best practices for communication, especially in this world where maybe the means of communication, the channels of communication are changing with Slack, Zoom, et cetera? I think, you know, in terms of the setting, I always strive for, and again, that's a leader's responsibility to set the stage for, I don't know, this term is so, you know, talked about a lot, psychological safety, right? But it's important. People need to not be fearful or scared what to say and how to say it. So there's an open room for that. There's creation of trust, where trust comes into play where people trust each other and trust the leadership team, again, needs to happen top down, sideways and bottom up. And I also would argue, you know, get on the phone with somebody or get on a Zoom call, right? Before you hash it around on 
10 email threads and you never see the bottom of it. Like know when certain things are better talked about in person or over the phone versus via email or Zoom. Does the current market environment have you reevaluating your investment strategy? There may be alternative opportunities you have yet to consider to safeguard your portfolio. We've created an exclusive guide for Capital Club listeners featuring the top alternative investments to consider when strategizing for inflation. Download it today at excelsiorgp.com slash download to learn how you can protect your portfolio, diversify your assets, and take advantage of tax benefits in today's market. That's excelsiorgp.com slash download. So the extension of kind of how we're talking about success, communication, especially within the family office setting where you're talking about multi-generational time horizons, how do you effectively gauge success, especially for younger generations that want to see things happen really quickly? This mindset might be 50, 100-year time horizon. How do you manage that dynamic? I think it's setting clear expectations and understanding what each person, what each generation means under success and why. I think getting clear on the goals and having a shared understanding on what that looks like. And I think, again, it goes back to just aligning to that and always checking back to it, right? Because people set the goals and they come up with a vision and then they do nothing with it. And, you know, months go by and then they think they've been totally wearing off and the other party thinks they've, they've been on target. So I think having often check-ins on how we're doing against what we said we were going to do. And if we fail, why do you think we fail? And realigning on it often. I think syncing up is... Communication is often underrated, right? Like people are sick of meetings and it's meeting overkill at the same time though, right? If you don't communicate often and stay aligned on what we want to achieve and why we didn't achieve it and that the outcomes doesn't match the goals, then you don't have enough conversation clearly, right? And so I'm is, always somebody to over-communicate than not. <laughs> right, of course. And we hear that all the time, especially within the family office space. The first step towards success is this kind of transparency, clear communication, open lines of communication. But do you think that goes into culture and like the top-down leadership amongst the founding generation, the culture that they've established within the company or the family? Yeah. And how do you know you have that culture, right? Because a lot of leaders think they're crystal clear in how to communicate and they think that everybody is totally open to telling them anything. But in reality, that's actually not the case. You know, because you then, you know, see people not saying anything forever and then things fester and then they fester and then they blow up because then triggers come on. Right. So if people don't feel empowered to say what they mean and mean what they say without any repercussions and feel heard, then you create these weird dynamics. Right. Or, you know, the whole concept of assumptions. Right. If somebody makes a statement or sets a goal or whatever they want to communicate people may think it's one way when it's not the other way. So you cannot spend enough time on being crystal clear on what is being communicated and having mutual understanding. The firms and the families that get this right, like what are the common characteristics you see across those groups? So I'm going to use Bridgewater as an example, right? Because it was probably one of my best experiences. Would I have said that every day I was there? No. <laughs> but now looking back to it, I think that's definitely what we got right. It's we were forced to be transparent. I'm going back to creating a community of trust. And I think inherently, we had a very strong bond and a very strong trust. And so because it was based on this notion of radical transparency, I think we did get that right, but it took work, right? And it took work creating a culture 
coming from a founder, right? That's like one thing, but living it and breathing it and making that a living thing, that's the job of everybody in the organization or in the family office. It's not something, and it's also changing, right? It's a very living, breathing kind of a thing, right? That you need to adopt. So it's it's not one thing. I mean, cornerstones of values, right? They stay the same. But then, you know, where the, where the critical things comes in is holding people accountable when they don't do what we said our values would be, right? That's where then the personalities come in and the dynamics, because it's, it's all great if you come up with, okay, this is our culture, this is how we engage, this is how we behave, this is what's rewarded, this is what's punished, our way of being, if you will, right? And then if you go down the path, right, and you see somebody, you know, acting against that, and nobody does anything about it, then you have a clear break, right? Especially with, with leaders, if they see like a senior partner behaving badly, right? And everybody's witness to that, yet the leader does nothing about it and continues to allow that behavior, that sends a clear message to everybody that our culture is actually not what we thought it would be, because otherwise you would punish that. And that happens a lot, you know, especially if you have high income producing partners, and they clearly behave badly on several levels and everybody sees it and nothing is being done about it, which yeah. is damaging. Yeah, I mean, the Bridgewater experience must have been incredible because to your point, Ray Dalio, radical transparency, it does, I mean, from what you're saying, it creates trust, huge amount of success and, and alpha being created, but also not everybody can feel comfortable there, right? I mean, it, there's, no. there's, especially within the leadership position there, there's been a lot of turnover, there's a lot of conflict. I mean, it's easy to say, but I think it's very hard to implement realistically. It is. And you know, and the other thing that ties in nicely to that, right? I was there from 08 to 2014. And, you know, we brought in a lot of senior leaders, right? And, and the critical element that's also relevant right now is the concept of unlearning and relearning, right? What worked in leading Oracle or any of these big companies, right, in the 80s and the 90s doesn't work right now. But if you are being rewarded as a leader and promoted over the decades behaving a certain way, what prompt do you have to totally change your behaviors and leadership style? So that that is hard, right? Because if for, for anything, right, if you're being rewarded for a certain way of being, behaving, leading over the decades, it's really hard to change that in the tracks and unlearn that and relearn new developments, which is why we had a lot of senior leaders early on come and go because Bridgewater operated very differently than any of these firms. But able to attract a huge amount of talent, right? I mean, they clearly the A-plus players, the really talented people, maybe they weren't able to stay there long-term, but they showed, they showed up for that, I assume. Yeah, I mean, it's easy to buy into it, right? Because it's, it's intriguing, it's fascinating. It's The brand is a very successful brand, right? And it's, I mean, we were written up by college professors, right, on our culture. And it's definitely, I mean, it works there, right? And it worked at that time. The, the company also iterated and changed a lot. I'm sure it's very different now than when I was there. But there are certain nuggets that I'll take with me for as long as I live, right? And everybody also has a different experience and thinks differently about the experience. To me, when I look back at it, it was really the best experience I had ever. And have you been able to bring any of those teachings to the families that you work with? And if so, which ones do you find that to be the most effective? Yeah, so I think people easily wrap their head around, you know, don't hire people who can do their job, hire people you want to spend your life with. And this whole notion around meaningful work, meaningful relationship, right? So th those were the easy things. You know, once it gets down to diagnosing what went wrong and why it went wrong, and that's more of the, the harder things to wrap around. 
the radical transparency and, and feedback without true coding anything is hard, right? Because giving feedback is, it's an art and a science. And I, with my team, right, for first-time managers, I sort of do like a four-hour course, right, on sort of the basics, having to do with communication, what atmosphere to create, what relationship to create with your direct reports, and how to go about giving feedback in a way that the other person internalizes it and doesn't reject it. Because people come to workplaces being more or less traumatized by prior experiences for feedback, right? Or even by childhood experiences, you know, because a lot of it goes back to childhood and how they how they grew up, right? And it comes with a lot of triggers. So if you hit them the way Bridgewater hit them with feedback, it can shut people down, which is not the purpose of, doesn't meet the goals of giving feedback, right? Because people just put up a barrier. What's keeping your clients up at night right now? What are the biggest challenges they face? I think it's change and uncertainty. I think that that is sort of the overarching thing. So if you take one any one piece, right, you can all roll that up and uncertainty. And, you know, I don't know, to a degree, I would think related would be how to adapt, right? How, how do you adapt to the circumstances? And, you know, humans, you know, adapt more out of desperation than inspiration, right? So if something really cannot be changed, then you have to learn to adapt, but you don't do it before. And do you find that, Different generation. If there are multiple generations working within one enterprise, do you find that one is more impacted by that uncertainty than others? Yeah, I think the older generations are more used to having things a certain way. I think that's just naturally the way it works. And younger generations are more nimble. Even with you know when you do when you look at the surveys, you know like leadership teams and and older generations want people back in the office, right? The younger generations have no desire whatsoever to go back to the office, or at least have a lot of flexibility. So as we wind down COVID or change it to whatever it is right now, I see a lot of executives wanting people back and younger people really don't want to. What about within your own business? I'd be curious to hear what challenges you're facing and how you're dealing with all this uncertainty. Well, my life has <laughs> prepared me well to, to adapt to new circumstances all the time, right? Because I'm an immigrant, so I came to this country with nothing. So it was, I had to adapt real quick to always new circumstances, right? Because I ended up in real estate when I was super young and new in this country, right? So my peers and competitors were men 30, 40 years older than I was, you know? Then I was at Bridgewater, right? I haven't been to Princeton, haven't been to Harvard, so I had to adapt to that. And now I'm in academia, right? I'm on my leadership team. I'm the only one without a PhD or one of the very few. I don't know, change to me doesn't, you know, I adapt well, let's put it that way. I don't like change all the time. It doesn't sit well with me in that instant, but I'm pretty adaptable to, that's why I worked across family offices, corporate America, Bridgewater, I have my own company. I adapt pretty well. Some adapt, you know, some environments speak better to my strengths than others, obviously. Corporate America was not a good experience. And funny enough, I had that right after Bridgewater and it was night and day. And it was like, now I know what people mean with corporate America. It's soul crushing. It's not good. <laughs> At least it wasn't for me. Well, and you hear that refrain a lot. And I had a stint within corporate law and it is awful. Right. Why do you think, I mean, I think we all know why, but why hasn't it changed? Is it because employees have not pushed back? Is it just this ingrained culture? Is it the fact that they continue to be successful? I mean, why hasn't it changed? I think it's hard to turn the wheels of big companies and generally it's hard. And I think the politics are, I mean, I'm just, I've never been good in navigating any kind of politics because I'm just too honest. You might not like what you hear. It might not be true, but I would always say what I mean. 
and that doesn't work well in corporate America, right? This whole, all these layers of management, you know, and it's, I don't know. I mean, the C-suite, right? They're usually aligned because they live in strategy world. They live in the future. It's sexy. It's a big vision, right? It's, it's shareholders. It's inspiring, right? And then the lower levels, right? They deal with tactical things. They try to get ahead. They're usually new early in their career. And they try to push up, right? But there's there's something happens in that middle management layer, right? Where there's just something that happens there. I'm convinced that somewhere in that middle management thing where that's a little bit of a food fight over almost avoiding bringing the younger generations up, right? And your job as a manager, as a leader, is to produce more of the same, right? Like teach people, elevate them, find what their magic is and highlight that and coach them and help them to prevent mistakes that you've made or, or let them make their own mistakes, but whatever it is, you got to nurture that next generation. So I don't know, what were your thoughts in, in big corporate when you were there? No, oh, it was horrible. What, what did you turn to? <laughs> <laughs> it was the worst years of my life, other, yeah. than, other than law school. Yeah, I mean, just lack of communication, lack of transparency, just felt like you were a cog in the machine, disassociation and, from a larger vision, you know, the usual things. And that's what I refer to as like nine to fivers, right? You go in at five, nine and you leave at five. And that, I never had a job like that in my life, right? Which is what people always say, you work all the time. I'm like, well, to me, it's really more about work-life integration than work-life balance, you know? So I never had a nine to five job in my life and I couldn't, I couldn't do it. But it's it, just not it, in my DNA. <laughs> It is interesting that you you commented about the bureaucracy of corporate America, and now you're involved in academia, which is famously bureaucratic and slow moving. And that is very hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, the, so the institute started as a client and now converted. It is very difficult. I mean, in the institute, we have a very fast pace because we're very industry focused, right? So we work with industry partners on on helping them in their AI journey and solving AI related business issues that, that they have. But it's very fast paced. But yes, we're housed within this academic structure. And that is hard. It's different, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, I know you're reticent to go into details, but, and maybe not even your own work, but I mean, what do you think, what are the coolest things happening within AI, machine learning, tech right now, in your opinion? I don't know if it's cool, but it is definitely needed. And it's the whole notion around ethics and responsible AI, right? Our technology advances a lot faster than we humans do. So we now come to realize by collateral damage, right, that wait a minute, those algorithms produce bad outcomes. Now, what do we do about it, right? And it's the same thing. You know, we do the thing, we roll it out to society, and then, oops, we see all these bad outcomes that happen as a result. And then how do we go about doing with it? How do we introduce responsible AI, right, to prevent these things from happening? That is probably one of the biggest things right now, that companies are really getting very cognizant on how you introduce ethics to their models and how do you prevent bad outcomes and biases, right? Because the data that's generated is human generated. And so inherent in that is a bias. So that that is definitely big on the list right now. Well, Sabrina, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been really fun. And we'll have to do a follow-up to hear more about the work you're doing in, in academia. A question that I ask people on the show, is there something that that you do daily that helps bring you peace to your life? I work out. <laughs> Fit, fitness yeah yeah fitness and you know and and discipline i you know i get up at four i'm at the office by five so and i think that also helps people through uncertainty right because your brain wants to anchor to something that's routine that's known that's comfortable 
And in a time of uncertainty, you know, when people are kind of frazzled and they don't know what's up and what's happening next, I always coach them or tell them or advise them or suggest, right? Anchor to a routine. Because that is like anchor to something that's routine that you know what's happening and that you can rely on. And that's that helped me through a lot of transitions. Yeah, I'm an early riser and work out early in the morning as well. So I completely understand that is my time. Well, if folks are interested in connecting with you, learning more about your work, sure. either on the consultancy or the academic side, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Sure. So on LinkedIn, you know, Sabrina Seidel, you can find me, put maybe the links in the show notes. And my company's website is cgcgroup.co. Awesome. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that. Please do leave a review and comment on which parts of the conversation with Sabrina that you like the most. And Sabrina, thank you so much. And I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.